As we begin, let me ask, where is your hope? Where do you put your hope? Is your hope in how much money you have? Is that nest egg the right size? Are your portfolios growing? Is a solid economy what gives you peace of mind? Maybe it's your health, maintaining that ideal weight, never failing that annual checkup, knowing that you are the picture of health. Maybe your hope is that the government will make the right choices and decisions that finally make everything all right. That the government will protect and serve the way that you think they should so that no one ever has to worry about anything or that the world peace will finally be achieved. Is that your hope? Maybe it's religion. Going to, church, going to the church of the month and doing all the right things, saying all the right words, giving of your time, money, and energy so that maybe you will find that right niche that fits you. Maybe you accept all religions because believing in something is what really matters. Maybe your life has led you to believe that the one thing you can trust or hope in is yourself. You can get stronger. You can buckle down and get through anything as long as you look out for number one and just keep fighting and things will always be fine. But what happens when some sort of difficulty comes into your life? Money can't raise the dead. Health fails, no matter how physically fit you are. No human government can live up to the ideals of the government because governments are run by flawed people. Most religions require you to work and try to be good enough, whether that's earning spirituality by doing good or denying self to, of all but the barest essentials to earn enlightenment. Individual strength and ability can meet its limit. Strength can run out. Abilities can fail. What then? Where is your hope then? In 2 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul discusses a time in his own life when difficulties caused him to really despair. This was a really dark time in his life. He was able to keep his hope securely in the Lord. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And you also helping to gather together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. We're going to look at three items here. The first is difficulties and sufferings. Difficulties and sufferings there in verse 8. Verse 8 again, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble for which 
came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Life has difficulties because of one reason. There is suffering in this world because of the same reason. And that's sin. Sickness, pain, death are a result of sin in this world. There is destruction because of sin. Things break down. Work is hard. People are sinful so they can be cruel. People hurt us. People we love hurt us. This world doesn't function the way God had originally created it. Sin has distorted and twisted the good creation. And difficulties and pain and suffering are a way of life because of sin. These things happen to everybody, whether we know the Lord or not. No one can escape suffering or difficulties. For Christians, sometimes this is God-ordained suffering. Sometimes God lets his children go through difficulties. These can be a result of discipline or chastening from the Lord. These could be times of persecution that God has allowed from those opposed to the gospel. These could be times of testing by God for an individual's, th- uh, individual's growth. But all of these, I think, are used by God in some way to stretch and grow the believer so that we can be more Christ-like. All, um, if the difficulties we are facing are from God, then we need to remember that we are not in this season by accident. I know it's cliche, but all things happen for a reason. Whether you know that or not, whether you ever find out what that reason is or not, all things work, all things happen for a reason. This doesn't mean that things will be easy. They can and most likely will be difficult. Warren Wearsby makes this encouraging comment. He says, when God puts his children into the furnace, he keeps his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the thermometer. Paul seems to have been going through a period of God-ordained suffering for a short time before he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. I should say that a major portion of this letter, Paul is defending his apostleship. False apostles had come up and they were getting into the church saying that he's not real. If these things were, if he was doing the right thing, he wouldn't have suffered this way. We're going to look at this passage and I'm so, if you're a health and wealth person, this passage doesn't work. You have to make a lot of interpretive leaps, do some interpretive ballet to make this passage work in a health and wealth scenario. Let's look at some of Paul's uh, descriptions of this time. We see them here in verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. That word trouble, this word to be translated affliction, tribulation, persecution, distress, anguish, and burden. This word is used 45 times in the New Testament. And all of them are used in the sense of a state of distress. 
which we should understand this state of distress be an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. Paul says that this trouble was upon him and his traveling or ministry companions in Asia. Now, this trouble happened sometime after the writing of 1 Corinthians and sometime before the writing of 2 Corinthians. And many have understood this to be the reference to the riot in Ephesus mentioned in Acts 19. Others think this is just some other form of trouble. One writer says, we would love to know what event Paul discusses here. One interesting guess is that he refers to the riot of Ephesus in Acts 19, but Paul may be referring to a severe illness, an imprisonment, or an attack from opponents. At the end of the day, we have to confess that we aren't given enough information to be certain. The suffering he experienced was almost completely paralyzing and disabling, and Paul despaired of living. Despaired of living? Yes, look at Paul's description of the toll the trouble was on him, himself and his party. The first word we have there is burdened. We were burdened. This means to weigh down, to be heavy. It is used here with the idea of being, that being grieving, that grieving is the burden. Meaning that they were in such distress so much that their sorrow felt like a burden too heavy to carry. But Paul adds to this description that they were burdened, that they were weighed down. He says that it was beyond measure. The idea of this word is that of extraordinary overabundance. This word is sometimes translated exceedingly. The idea of this word is that one has an extremely more than is necessary. They were weighed down beyond measure. Now, as I was reading this, the idea that came to mind in my pic- that I pictured in my head when I was reading this, and you farmers can correct me if I'm overstating this, but we've all seen those farm trucks with the, with the grain trailer on the back. Some of us here have probably driven them or have helped fill them, but all of us have seen them on the road. What if one of those was so overloaded that all the shocks and axles broke. It was overweighed. It had been weighed down exceedingly. Now, I know these trucks are overbuilt, so it's very unlikely to happen, but that's the picture that came to mind. <laughs> so bear with me on that. But Paul continues his description here, and he says that this burden was above strength. Not only were they weighed down, it was above strength. This word strength can mean power or might, and is used here with a sense of ability, meaning that the quality of being able to perform, that this burden was more, not only was it weighing them down so excessively, but it was more than any of them could be able to lift. They couldn't perform. They couldn't do their own strength, use their own strength to overcome this burden. This troublesome was so burdensome to Paul and the others that he says they despaired even of life. This word despaired here is only used twice in the New Testament here and in chapter four, verse eight. The word means 
to despair, to be in doubt, to be in great trouble. Both uses in the New Testament have the same sense of falling apart. This is the idea of losing one's emotional or mental composure. They were at the point of having a breakdown because whatever their problems were, it was weighing them down. They couldn't get out of it. They were having emotional breakdowns. They were despairing of life. Paul was crushed and weighed down by this trouble to such an extent that he was sure he was going to die. And the sounds of his description here, he would have welcomed it. Warren Wearsby writes, whatever these troubles were, they were sufficient to crush Paul and cause him to pass sentence on his life. He despaired even of life itself. Wearsby gives a comforting thought here. He says, how comforting to know that even the great saints of God are still made of clay. Part of what I am, am, am reading here, what comes to mind is this sounds a little bit like Paul was suffering from the Elijah syndrome, at least to an extent. What do I mean by the Elijah syndrome? In 1 Kings 19, 1 through 10, Elijah, we see Elijah, and this is right after the prophet has had his great spiritual victory in Israel with his showdown against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But in the beginning of this chapter, we see him on the run from Queen Jezebel, who was threatened, who has sworn to kill him. He and his servant get to one place. He leaves his servant and he moves on. And in verse 4 of 1 Kings 19, we read, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Well, the Lord ministers to him. He says, Go to sleep. Here's some food. Sleep again. Here's some more food. Now, get up. You're going to go on this journey. We're going to talk. Then in verse 10, when he is speaking with the Lord, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel who have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Now, I don't think everything that Paul was going through here was like Elijah. Elijah was kind of having this, I'm all alone. What's going to happen? God, it's, I'm done. Take me. We don't know exactly what was going on with Paul, but, <laughs> but I don't think it was totally what we have here in Elijah. But it's a par we see a little of a parallel. Elijah was so depressed after this great victory that he was ready to die. God sent an angel to minister to Elijah. Then God showed him that he was still in control and that he would take care of Elijah. Elijah had to trust in the Lord. So did Paul. And so do we. When God allows these difficulties and sufferings that weigh us down, he is forcing us to rely on him alone. Our suffering is not pointless. It is to build our faith and hope. Our next point comes from verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, 
who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So our second point here is to rely on God. To rely on God, verses 9 through 10. Now this first uh, phrase that we have here, we have the sentence of death. Paul is saying that not only were they convinced of their coming death because of this trouble, but that they were giving up any hope. John Gill, a commentary from the early 1800s, says, By this sentence of death is meant not any decree of heaven or appointment of God that they should die, nor any sentence of condemnation and death passed by, on them by the civil magistrate, but an opinion or persuasion in their own, that they should die, so far were they from any hopes of life, that they looked upon themselves as dead men. Paul and his team were so crushed by this trouble that they saw no hope in life. They were expecting death to come quickly, but they came through their troubles. The second part of verse 9, Paul gives the reason for their terrible defeating trouble, that they should not trust in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. One commentator says the first thing he must do, first thing God must do is to show us how weak we are in ourselves. Paul was gifted and experienced servant of God who had been through many different kinds of trials. Surely all of this experience would be sufficient for him to face these new difficulties and overcome them. But God wants us to trust him, not our gifts or abilities or our experience or our spiritual reserves. Just about the time we feel self-confident and able to meet the enemy, we fail miserably. For when I am weak, I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. God wants us to rely on him. Not our money or the economy not our strength or abilities, not our determination to get through it, not the government or politicians, and not religion, not the motions of church and service, but fully trusting God alone to accomplish his will, no matter what that looks like. Why? Look at how Paul describes God in this verse. God who raises the dead. Paul, trusting the living God is pow who is powerful enough to raise the dead. Paul trusted in God because he knew God is powerful enough to do what God intended. Even bringing the dead to life. Think back in your mind to the account of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Abraham and Sarah were both around 100 when Isaac was born. And Hebrews 11 considers their faith in God. Hebrews 11 verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him, God, faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
Later, Abraham was told by God to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 discusses Abraham's faith about this task. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he was also received, received him in a figurative sense. Abraham knew that Isaac was this child of promise, the son of promise. His legacy, his seed would go through Isaac. Everything that God had promised Abraham would come through, essentially through Isaac. But God asked him to take him and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham was willing to go the full extent of offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Why? Because in verse 19 of Hebrews 11, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. He had faith to believe that if God wanted Isaac to be the son of promise, he would raise him from the dead. Paul's hope in God and his power was not, was not just tied to the account of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, but also to the truths he knew of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A fundamental part of the gospel message is God raising Jesus from the dead. Between Acts 2 and Acts 5, the apostles declare that God raised Jesus from the dead four times. In Romans 10 and verse 9, Paul writes a confession of salvation. He says that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One source makes this common. Through his trials, Paul had realized that God's power to raise the dead had significance beyond Christ's resurrection and the general bodily resurrection of the last day. God was able day by day to make the power of Christ's resurrection evident in believers' lives. In other words, this God's power that we use to raise Christ from the dead is, can be evident in our lives day by day, especially as we have faith and we trust in him. So Paul and the others, having reached the end of their strength, learned to trust God, the God who raises the dead, God who could have raised Isaac if he had allowed Abraham to sacrifice him, God who raised Jesus from the dead, breaking death's reign, God who will raise all the saints on the last day. In verse 10, Paul continues, and we can understand verse 10, that God delivered Paul and his team from that time of trouble and what they felt sure was certain death, a past deliverance and that he was preserving their lives with his continuing mercy, a present deliverance. And that they had hope and encouragement that he would continue to deliver and preserve them for their continued service of his will, a future deliverance. 
Their past experience of being brought to that extreme end of their strength had allowed God to show himself in their lives, which causes them to trust God again and hope for his work of deliverance in their lives. Wearsby makes an interesting comment here. He says, Paul saw God's hand of deliverance, whether he looked back, around, or ahead. The word Paul used means to help out of distress, to save and protect. God does not always deliver us immediately, nor in the same way. James was beheaded, yet Peter was delivered from prison, Acts 12. Both were delivered, but in different ways. Sometimes God delivers us from our trials, and at other times he delivers us in our trials. Believers, we will go through difficult times. Some are just the result of a sin-cursed world. Some are designed or ordained by God for our growth in Christ-likeness. And as we grow in our Christ-likeness, as we grow in being an image of Christ, we will become more and more dependent on God and trust and hope in him no matter what happens in our lives, whether we live or die for Christ. But as we move into the third verse, we see that Paul also recognized the power of prayer. Verse 11, you also helping together in prayer for us that, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. That's our third point, prayer. Prayer from verse 11. Prayer is an important part of the Christian life. Prayer is where we interact directly with the Lord. We bring our concerns, our thanks, our confessions of sin all to the Lord through prayer. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. As we pray about our difficulties, as we, by faith, pray to God, his peace can comfort us. As we seek the Lord in prayer, seeking deliverance, pleading our cause or perceived need of relief, even bring questions that we may never see the answers. We further our dependence on him. And as we do this with true faith and hope in the Lord, then his peace will comfort us and we will be able to walk through whatever he has willed for us. But we don't have to and shouldn't have to pray alone. We have fellow believers who can pray for us as well. In Galatians 6, 2, Paul writes, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul routinely sought the prayers of the churches and individuals he wrote his letters to. He also encourages believers, as in Galatians 6, 2, to aid one another in prayer. Our burdens can become easier when our church family and other believers bring the matter to the Lord in their prayers. 
Now, Paul uses a verb at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 1.11. It says, helping together. That's one word in the Greek. It is the idea of cooperative work. And it seems likely that what Paul is implying is that through their prayers, believers collaborate with God. Now, the purpose of Paul's time of trouble was God's glory. Paul indicates that many people have been praying for him and that God delivering him through that time of trouble was a gracious gift. The gift came about partly because so many were praying for him and God answered their prayers according to his will. But since so many had been praying for Paul, just as many now give thanks because Paul was delivered through God answering prayer. And if they are giving thanks to God, they are praising God and they are glorifying God for answering prayer. One source puts it this way. Finally, Paul acknowledged the purpose behind his sufferings and deliverances. God's glory. Paul drew, the Corinth Paul drew the Corinthians into his perspective by acknowledging that they would surely help him in the future by offering their prayers to God. As a result, many would give thanks to God for God's responses to their prayers. Many believers would be grateful for the gracious favor God would grant when he answered the prayers of many. The Corinthians were to have the right attitude towards Paul's absence by remembering that their sympathetic prayers helped him in his suffering and glorified God. So as we, as we co close this year, as we end 2020, the year of the great disruption, the year that brought us COVID-19, a year of civil unrest, of dramatic elections and political uncertainty, I ask you again, where do you put your hope? Let me encourage you to put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in the God who raises the dead.